opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent. We know who the hard left are, who associate with the hard left. You just said that to the right wing, the hard left agenda. Printing, printing money, money nationalisation without compensation, hard left with opposition, hard left, the 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 the hard left, the hard left, the the Fly out of mouth. They had something called They're special. A lot of people it's a small little grouping of shut, shut, shut it up milk. Specialty milk. Specialty milk. Hmm. Oof welcome. In blue jam. Blue jam. Hello and welcome to Real Politic, the only genuinely satirical podcast of the last 20 years or ever. And if there is any news about the death of Michael Heseltine in the next two hours, we'll let you know. Did I get it? Yeah, yeah. Yep, sounds good to me. Great. Yeah. Good. I was just expecting a bit of laughter from the man who came up with the bit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I only podcast with 100% sincerity. There's no fake laughter from me. <laughs> <laughs> I came up Shut with a joke up. a few hours ago, and I've been laughing until the exact moment we started recording. Yeah, yeah, he's Where been I'll there, done that. With... He's moved, moved on to the next great joke. I'll meet Jack with stony silence as a kind of subtle power struggle sort of thing. I'll meet you with stone silence as I don't actually listen to what you say because I'm in, a, in my own little world. So our guest today on Real Politic, alongside myself, Jack, uh, my co-host Geraint, and my other co-host Yair, is our longtime friend Juliet Jakes, author of the piece for Red Pepper, among many other things, How Corbyn Unmasked Comedy. So hi, Juliet. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jack. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it, it, it's good that we could get together for something other than just another episode about how we hate Keir Starmer. Oh man, I hate that guy. Yeah, I do hate him. We can talk about how we hate him. We can work it into this wider uh, thesis. I mean, this episode <laughs> is about comedy and humour, and I often think about the Keir Starmer hotel room anecdote <laughs> and so i was sort of working on a, a piece about starmer at the time which never got like finished but it did include the line i've seen funnier collier explosions <laughs> <laughs> that's quite morris isn't it like, <laughs> colliers are exploding across the country <laughs> i mean it should, it should have been colliery explosions there not collier <laughs> that was literally a day-to-day -day sketch wasn't it the dog bombs but yeah yeah okay. yeah okay there you go so you wrote that piece a couple of years ago didn't you how Corbyn unmasked comedy can you um fill everybody in on sort of what you would say in that piece yeah I mean I wrote it in the aftermath of the election I wrote it round about the time that the pandemic was really kicking in so sort of spring 2020 possibly just before lockdown and was sort of editing it 
And I've been listening to several podcasts that had done whole episodes on the state of comedy. And obviously you've done an episode on Ricky Gervais. Oh, yeah. um, so did We Don't Talk About the Weather. There was a very good Chapo Trap House bit about why the sort of liberal line of comedies going from The Daily Show through to the present just didn't work in the Trump era. And I was just often talking to friends about how disappointed we were with, I mean, various strands of the culture that we'd grown up with, you know, being in our late 30s at the time, but, you know, particularly like music journalists and comedians and those two worlds were quite close to each other in some ways and how they'd responded to Corbynism with this sort of sneering disdain and how it just meant that we just sort of felt unable to watch these shows and people kept saying to me like oh you should write something about this and sure enough I did want to investigate it so I wrote it for the I thought it was just going in the print edition of Red Pepper which you know bless Red Pepper I'm very fond of them but it's not got like a huge readership so I wasn't really expecting a lot of people to see it and it finally went online in July I think is it fair to say you you didn't expect it to find its way to Al Murray the pub landlord no (laughs) nor Frankie Boyle nor Dara O'Brien or any any of the rest of them really I honestly thought you know about 10 of my friends would read it and just go yeah nice piece of comedy and I'd go thanks and that'd be it And it went online, I think at the same time I'd written a like 12,000 word piece about the media and lockdown and sort of town and countryside and city and Britain and British politics. And, you know, no one was really interested in that, I guess, because it just kind of went on forever. But this piece just sort of went online and just immediately was everywhere in a way that I was incredibly surprised about. But I guess it just distilled what a lot of people, you know, you guys very much included, were thinking and saying about comedy. And of course, some of the luminaries you just mentioned, you know, they were never going to go and listen to like an hour or two of of real politics, or we don't talk about the weather. But, you know, if enough people kind of shoved it in front of them and went, see this, that's you, that is, then they might read it, which they did. And they got very, very, very annoyed, some of them, which in a lot of cases is the funniest thing they've ever done. Um, (laughs) And it was certainly a a surprise to me, yeah. I still see it shared all the time as well, like three years later, (laughs) because the people it's talking about have only got worse and they've only borne the analysis broadly correct, I think. Absolutely. Well, like the genesis of this episode was on our last one. We were talking a bit about that very funny little speech that Chris Morris did for... uh, It was some kind of NHS event, wasn't it? And he did a nice... One of the unions, I think, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He did a nice little bit where he was laying into Wes Streeting, one of our arch nemesis, uh, which was incredibly satisfying. Um, And, you know, I'm not saying Chris Morris necessarily shares all our politics, but just in that moment, it felt really cathartic to have him on the barricades with us just on that one specific issue of Wes Streeting being a cunt. And, (laughs) (laughs) And so we got talking about that on our last episode with FFF, and we were talking about how Morris doesn't do that much, or at least he's working quietly on a project behind the scenes for a long time before it comes to fruition. But when he does do stuff, I mean, he's got an incredible hit rate. It's basically all really good. And we contrasted that with Armando Iannucci. And I thought it would be good, rather than just doing a kind of sycophantic fanboy episode about Chris Morris... I thought it'd be really cool to bring Juliet on and talk more about that general kind of generation of the comedy or well, satire specifically and, you know, where it all went wrong for them with the caveat that some of them are still doing really good stuff. 
and I'm, you know, I've got to say, I'm a huge fan of Iannucci as well, for the most part. I think up until, you know, Death of Stalin was pretty good. Like, up until then, his hit rate was comparable to that of Morris. It's just in the last few years, you know, maybe some of us with our brains addled by UK politics might associate him more with, say, some of his tweets about Jeremy Corbyn. And then the lack of any hard-hitting satire in that time from him just compounds the reality of his shit politics in his actual life. I do remember seeing a very good tweet, and apologies because I can't remember who it was from, but it basically said the day-to-day on the hour crowd... You can track exactly how much they've melted their brains in correlation with their Twitter use. Yeah. So, you know, you had Chris oh, Morris at the top. Think, yeah. Yeah. Chris Morris like at the top. And rough. then Stuart Lee, I think. And then Steve Coogan. Yeah. And then Richard Herring. And, you know, at the bottom, you have Armando Iannucci. And then, of course, like Graham Linehan, who, you know, <laughs> you'd have to have a new draft just for, just for him, I think. Because, you know, like. reality entirely. Yeah. You've got not... Quantic as well, who was on the writing oh, staff of oh the hour. Gosh, and he, yeah. I mean, he's not Glinner level no, insane. Yeah. He's just a cunt. He's but, really like, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Coogan and how he doesn't use Twitter. Now, that is the satirical gift that keeps on giving. Alan Partridge is to this day fucking brilliant. Like, I mean, I wasn't overly taken with this time with Alan Partridge, but I can forgive a lot for someone who gets someone to sing Come Out You Black and Tans on <laughs> national television. Yeah, I think it was patchy, but the, the good bits were good enough to still justify yeah. the time spent on yeah. it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Justify it in that particular example. Well, I mean, while it's still great, like, knowing me, knowing you is not really one of my favourite Partridge things, and so, you know, more of that. It was mm. never going to be top of my list of Partridge projects, but I did find by the second series, this time came into its own. And I doubt they'll do another one, really, because they tend to keep the Partridge projects quite short individually, just two series or so. Yeah. But they've started doing more and more of them. Like well, that's the last... what makes it so adaptable, right? Yeah. The last 10 years, there's been a new Partridge product about every year. Like, there was just a storm of Partridge in 2011. They but, did the Mid-Morning Matters yeah. TV mm. series. Which they is great, did... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, For the most part, put... the stuff yeah. sort of since the comeback has been probably better than the very sporadic stuff in the years before that. Yeah, um, it's because they've got these two new guys, yeah. Neil Gibbons and Rob Gibbons, brothers, who are just fucking great clearly they know their way inside the characters they seem to get the character and get on well enough with the established team as well that they gel coogan still writes it with them Ionucci hasn't been Mm. involved in writing partridge for about 10 years he did assist in the initial comeback with the first memoir and first series of mid-morning matters and the film as well in 2013 but yeah since then he stepped back but but yeah i imagine that's more to do with him having gone to do veep and stuff and being yeah sort of trans Atlantic, then. He's got other like, shit to do. Sorry, Juliet. He likes American things now. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so much better than, than our debate predict, politics. Predicted his own melting in a way. Because yeah, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, our British politics. You know, you might not agree with everyone. You know, there's like vastly different views. And in... oh wait, no, there's not. But you might have extremely marginal differences based on what party you support with other people in politics. But you know, there was a certain decorum. Everyone kind of respected each other. And then 2016, Jeremy Cor- 2015, 16, Jeremy Corbyn came along. He made Britain leave the EU and invented bullying in politics and, and that anti-semitism 
Uh, and anti-Semitism, yes, that's well uh, well observed, Jair. <laughs> that he is indeed a rotter. It's strange, isn't it? You'd think that the thick of it in recent years, there'd be more of a demand for it than ever in terms of our febrile politics. But Iannucci seems kind of paralysed satirically. Well, Iannucci said he didn't think there was any point doing any more of the thick of it after the final series in 2012. And he's probably right. I'm not saying And I think he is right. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think the problem with the thick of it, I mean, I loved it at the time. I was a really big fan in the early 2010s. And there's still a lot of very funny stuff in there. And, you know, the sort of basic comic premise of the stakes being really pretty low and certainly way too low to justify, you know, um, Malcolm Tucker's... I nearly called him Talcum Mucker. Um, (laughs) Malcolm Tucker, a bit like that Chapo bit where... Felix claims that Biden called the president President Trump, which I've not been able to verify anywhere else, but it's very funny. So choose to believe it's true. I'm sure it's um, true. The ecstatic the, truth. Exactly. But the stakes are so low in the thick of it, which is obviously where a lot of the humour comes from. But I think yeah. a lot of comedy relies on the unresolved tension. And with the thick of it, the unresolved tension that was sort of interesting and funny was, is this programme essentially supportive of this way of doing politics but just thinks it's being done badly Mm. or is it completely contemptuous of it and it was quite hard to tell Mm. which is why i think in the cameron Miliband period it could straddle an audience of kind of people like us and i was about to say new statesman columnists but i was a new statesman columnist at the time (laughs) but it could straddle quite a wide audience i'm just Um, i just gotta say i'm just imagining now like the final episode of the thick of it where glenn tries after leaving to join the lib dems he tries to worm his way back (laughs) to the party you know i'm just imagining you you know hard, hard up going back to the new statesman uh, and, 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 and helen lewis as like malcolm tucker is just like you fucking traitor yeah um, <laughs> yeah both have each other blocked on twitter so we can never know but yeah that tension is kind of unresolved and of course what happened after corbyn came in is that people who are interested in politics you know have to pick a side a bit more and you know it's not so much of a problem with like chris addison being very anti-corbyn but it is a problem that Iannucci was because it sort of confirms to you that they're very much on the side of like no this is broadly how we think politics yeah. should be done which I found really disappointing and to be honest since then when I've gone back to the thick of it I found it to be quite an interesting sort of documentary of its time but I can't really find it funny anymore so I, I guess I was talking about how Iannucci doesn't really feel like he has anything to say about the current time and i think in part of that it's because it's kind of it's hard to articulate in a satirically compelling way that you want a return of the kind of politics that you've so viciously satirized before Um, (laughs) so for example the starmer party is literally bringing back this culture of just like everyone is terrified of fucking stepping out of line and you've got bully boys roaming the party not a guy like Seamus Milne who you can project bullying onto but that's just because you think he's a Stalinist or whatever it's not actually a behavioural thing we've seen those leaked Labour reports 
bits, the mm. the WhatsApp files, the big labor leak, like the stuff in them. These people absolutely do talk like drastically yeah. less witty, funny, articulate, and clever. But the same level of, of spite and pettiness. Uh, yeah, yeah, again, yeah. Without, but without actual good punchlines. Like if the thick of it was written by Giles Corrin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where like I hope yeah. you die in a fucking fire. Like Ian Martin would have been able to punch that up into something funny, but as it is, they just sound like awful cunts. And like and Ian Uchi is just like fucking hell. Well, we better let, let we better let this happen, otherwise. Yeah. Uh, what what was I said last time? Somebody who agrees with me on the Iraq War, which is a totally unserious position that I can hold privately. But I know as a realistic liberal, you're not allowed to hold. A as a politician might become prime minister that would be awful <laughs> i mean i've always taken it as you know actually in the writing staff sort of steaming in on the way politics was done at that time but you know at the absolute worst being very mildly peeved with what the actual politics were yeah um <laughs> certainly at the start when, when the show first popped up you know, she was actually a card carrying lib them at that time. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know exactly when that stopped. I'd presume sometime not too long after they went into coalition, which probably makes the latter series with the lib them analogues in it being maybe a sort of outlook for his disappointment. But I think as politics is sort of reverting toward that mean, as Jack mentioned, they could try and bring it back in that sense. But as you've alluded to, it just wouldn't hit the same because. Yeah. We know that the solution to this, if all these people stop being so petty, would be exactly the same as we have now, but with less PFI funding for stuff or, or something well, like I mean, that. Some minor it's... tweaks around the edges. I mean, it's a boring cliche at this point, and has been for quite a long time, to say, well, things are so ridiculous that you can't satirise them. Yeah, it's such bullshit. I hate that. I mean, yeah. it's really boring. But Sorry also, if you're going to agree with it. <laughs> I'm going to kind of unpack it a bit. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> I mean... It's very hard to think of what the kind of form, content, ideological, sort of implicit political position, a sort of broad brush popular satire would have. Because I think Mm. satirising just the kind, you know, Chris Morris obviously satirised the sort of form of news and sort of current affairs media much more than the content. I mean, he satirises the content in fairly hard to define politically terms you know it's very much satirized the sort of visual language of it and the sort of cadence of it but not so much the sort of political positioning of it and then obviously Iannucci very effectively satirized the sort of 2000 centrist way of doing things I'm not really sure what a sort of equivalent satire now that would have some sort of countercultural cachet but also sort of reach a large enough audience to persuade television companies to invest in it. I'm not really sure what that would look like. And, Mm. you know, obviously on one path, you have Matt Ford, who, you know, that... path of fucking no return. That The the, the road to ruin. Absolutely (laughs) abysmal spitting image. I mean, he blocked me on Twitter because I said that the Ian Duncan Smith's remakes of those spitting image sketches were much funnier than the originals. Also, I kept calling him Fat Maud. Um, (laughs) But that speaks to something in itself. I mean, those Ian Duncan Smith remixes of the Spitting Image sketches, I thought were staggeringly funny. But for example, there's one of them, the sort of piss take out of the redubbed of this terrible Greta Thunberg sketch. And the Greta Thunberg character on the new Spitting Image was one of the absolute worst things in it. 
Uh, they don't say that lightly. But they give her a kind of Scouse accent. She looks like this agro Scouser and kind of comes in and has an argument with her mate, who is like, I'm trying to leave a review of Matt Ford's new book because Richard Osmond said it was a funny and witty book. But I want to say it's a pile of shit, but I can't because Matt Ford's complained to the manager. So in order to find that funny, you have to like know who Matt Ford is and that he's written these spitting image sketches. You have to know that he's brought out a book called Politically Homeless and share the position, which is, you know, not necessarily a mainstream position that anyone who calls himself Politically Homeless is a fucking prick. <laughs> you have to know that all these left-wing shit posters kept leaving reviews on Amazon saying things like the bit where Tony Blair rides George Bush bareback on the streets of Fallujah. Um, you know, possibly <laughs> crosses the line into bad taste sounds um, like FFF yeah so like, you have to know that you have to know that Matt Ford has complained to Amazon and got them to make it so that only verified purchasers can review the book and you have to like know all of that to find it funny yeah you have to be extremely online and on a fairly marginal bit of online and I mean the other thing I will say is this I realize I'm kind of monologuing a bit but I was talking to Trevor Bastard, of course, you know, another of your former guests. And, you know, he and I were batting around the idea of, you know, the thing that really needs to be satirised is people like Matt Ford. Trevor and I were sort of batting around the idea of basically writing a sitcom about the British sort of commentary and about right. the media, which is the thing I think needs to be satirised. But we sort yeah. of, we talked about it and we were like, well, what would happen? We would write a pilot and, you know, we would take Trevor's incredible sense of humor and satirical skill and my reasonable knowledge of the industry and you know possibly some of my humor as well and put together a pilot but then we would go to a tv company and say hey we've written this pilot script about how you and all your mates are a bunch of fucking <laughs> vacuous, yeah stupid unpleasant arrogant aging fucking cliquey assholes who are kind of wittingly and unwittingly pushing this country into fascism um can we have some <laughs> money to write a whole series um, yeah this is the problem i think these people have yeah. got their teeth so sharply into you know in the 80s these people obviously were getting their teeth into the economy and sort of smashing the unions and stuff but they hadn't they were starting to get their teeth into the bbc but they hadn't sort of taken over alternative comedy alternative music yeah all the sort of interesting avenues where working class and uh, middle class people were coming through and there's a good alexis sale interview where he talks about exactly this that after sort of punk and alternative comedy and these various cultural movements that articulated a intelligent accessible popular criticism of the status quo the right wing made sure that didn't happen again and you know twitter of course has been the new challenge for them because people do mock them very effectively on twitter but also they just constantly show themselves to be completely stupid in a way that is very very funny which i think was another point i made in the red pepper article that i think touched a yeah a bit of a nerve but sorry that's quite a rambling bit but that's what you get when you don't produce agendas for your podcast and just let your guests <laughs> like speak <laughs> no, no regrets no, ne yeah. never apologize never yeah. condemn that's 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 to work out well yeah. so we'll just let you cut <laughs> i was thinking in the corbyn years not just around the corbyn thing but various other polarizing issues in recent years like the scottish independence referendum brexit boris johnson covid fucking ukraine donald trump the list goes on these things where people are divided into very kind of concrete camps there's very little popular agreement on really where anyone's coming from or uh, what anyone is actually trying to do so you know to us 
there's clearly this sort of venal political journalistic class that is waving through far-right reaction just because someone called them a melt on Twitter. But those people, the last few years... Because of like this increasing amount of polarization, specifically around the idea of like there's one group that represents an establishment and there's another that wh- whether this is actually the case or not is seen as trying to challenge it. The people who then someone's a journalist, someone writes for a TV show, they're a comedian who was good in the 90s or something. They see somebody like identifying their kind of ilk as the establishment, as the problem. And what was in 2005 harmless japes about their professional class now is a grave existential threat. And so satire is suddenly not so funny anymore. Yeah, that's very, very true. And that sort of certainly sums up how they've reacted to Twitter and how they reacted to, you know, in the early 2010s, certain media organisations making limited space for younger people and people a bit more on the left. Mm. to have a voice you know again by myself kind of included with that and then realize what the sort of implications and likely consequences of that were you know especially when corbynism happened and just kind of pulled up the bridge but something else i want to just kind of bring up here and this is bringing it into the realm of personal experience which sort of links back to some of the stuff there about broad brush satire and how difficult it is to do my dad really introduced me to satire and like i remember watching the day-to-day with my dad when it was first on in like 1994 and yeah my dad introduced me to like monty python i remember both of us watching dr strange love together remember eric with... idol's beef with michael and us he was like oh you don't <laughs> want jeremy corbyn to get in and nationalize monty python <laughs> well i mean yeah it would have been good but uh, you know we watched that we both used to watch have i got news for you pretty much every week in the 90s and my dad's politics are very very different to mine i mean my dad is sort of ukip end of tory in lots of ways and not someone who really likes thinking quite deeply about politics, you know, doesn't really watch the news. And satire is indeed is where he gets a lot of his sort of politics from. But if I were to give him, you know, what I think is like a brilliant satirical novel, like, say, Hugh Lemmy's Red Tory, which is sort of all about a sort of West Streeting type wonk who gets really into chemsex and then can't discern... <laughs> what's true and what's not following British news and the papers. Or indeed, what I think is the best piece of British satire I've seen in the last few years, which is the Ian Duncan Smith Gatecast, video. Gatecast, yes, thank Gatecast, you. Gatecast, yes. Yeah, I'm uh, very, very pleased. Well, I mean, I was going that. to say uh, Tim <laughs> Peake's Baron Walk with me, but yeah. Um, that as well. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Again, I think he would find that incomprehensible. He would also yeah. find even something a bit more straightforward like the absolutely brilliant i think ian duncan smith's video about david's law like in the wake of the david amos killing and all of these dickheads saying look we need to do something about online anonymity shameless opportunism of it i think he would find any of those things pretty hard to read and hard to see where they were coming from and wouldn't understand why they were funny but i think if you were to write basically a version of the thick of it from the other side so it was about the media and their relationship with politics rather than politics relationship with the media Because in the Mm. thick of it, you never really see the media or hardly ever like you see them kind of ambush MPs, but you never really see a newspaper. You never really spend much time in a newsroom or with a freelance journalist. I mean, they come up here and there, but they're largely off screen and the sort of way they're actually going to behave is just kind of taken for granted. But I think, yeah, like I said, the sort of thing that Trevor and I were batting about broadly satirising what I call the political media complex 
would probably straddle an audience like me and my dad because the one thing we mainly do agree on is that this sort of centre-right establishment are a bunch of like boring, joyless, venal, (laughs) unimaginative pricks. So yeah, I mean, that to me feels like where the satire is. But like I said, I just don't think we're going to be, for structural sort of industry reasons, don't think you're going to be allowed to do it. I mean, let's talk a little bit about how we all hate Keir Starmer. Um, Yeah. (laughs) there's always time for that so i think that satire is you can look at it as a microcosm of the manner in which the media has gone so unbelievably easy on starmer i was just thinking about what is off limits and what is acceptable to make fun of about starmer and i think it was my mum and my auntie who are avid radio 4 listeners were telling me about some kind of sketch about Starmer the other day. It was on Radio 4, and it was just all about how he's indecisive. He couldn't answer a question straight. All very true and accurate observations, I'm sure. But if you want to go a little deeper than that observations, you know, <laughs> I think that a real hard-hitting, cynical, scabrous satirist would go a little bit deeper with Starmer over his flagrant dishonesty because this is some this is something you won't bloody hear on radio for they won't bloody let you say this now the political correctness and that but fucking it is unbelievable how fucking starmer will just accuse anyone who is his political opponent of anti-semitism like it's it's (laughs) preposterous it's stratospheric it's the most cynical thing you've ever seen in politics there's degrees of separation like the jamie driscoll thing it's like Mm -hmm. ken loach thinks jeremy corbyn isn't anti-semitic so ken loach is anti-semitic and jamie driscoll doesn't think ken loach is anti-semitic and sat with him so he's anti-semitic and by the way any constituency labor party that discusses the jamie driscoll thing that's banned because that's also anti-semitic it is i'm sorry it is like i fucking don't know how to make it funny unless somebody is laughing at my blind well, impotent the page. thing is the thing but that's going to make can... it funny unfortunately <laughs> is it being turned back round on him during an election which it's going to be <laughs> I mean, that's that's the cruel cold schadenfreude that we might yeah. get out of this but that's it but that's uh, absolutely the level of cynicism that Iannucci identified in the political class in the thick of it. You can't well, this say... this is it. But, I mean, I think the period that's intervened between the type of politics and the thick of it, the sort of Corbyn-Johnson-Brexit period and this sort of mm. attempted centrist restoration that we've been living through the last few years, is that satirists now can no longer pretend, as the thick of it managed quite successfully to do, pretend that this isn't the kind of politics they want and that's why you get spitting image by matt ford it's and, like, oh i'd be yeah. i'd be less cynical but they're all the bloody same and then suddenly they weren't all the bloody same and it's like yeah. oh shit hang on i have to actually like, and now it's like they're all the same house. now and oh, yeah. that's, that's good actually yeah yeah <laughs> or they were like actually they're not all the same now because corbyn's a brexit <laughs> and um <laughs> boris johnson isn't apparently so we need to vote for, for boris johnson i mean actually i obviously most of them didn't actually go as far as saying vote for boris johnson maybe no. like lee kern did but not a, a really notable figure on the comedy scene there a, a marginal figure on the comedy scene if there ever was one but it was very disappointing to see Stuart lee become an fbpe guy as you mentioned in your red pepper art yeah, yeah i mean i didn't really want to go in too hard on Stuart lee because actually he's a still lot of, funny he's still funny he still <laughs> has a lot of shows good... some sign of realizing uh, yeah. how ridiculous some elements of the fbpe Side, uh, I think he's probably yeah, I mean, I, a few, I few toes in the water. I can't read those pieces in the Observer. I, you know, I've, I've tried and I just can't yeah. can't get on with them. 
So I uh, thought he was fucking joking at first. I thought it was just the Stuart Lee character when, like, when he confides in well, Ian Uchen, the hostile is, interrogator, that's, that's that he's bitterly, bitterly like... sexually and professionally jealous of Russell Brand. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I think it's partly just who are his friends, who does he hang out with, who are his circle, mm. and you know, mm. even a mind as good and intelligent and analytically astute as his, if all of the people he's going to see the Nightingales with are complaining that Corbyn won't stop Brexit, then it probably becomes yeah. quite hard to resist that eventually. Yeah. It's um, like, I've got you three like constantly telling me that Keir Starmer is bad. There's no yeah. reason that I would think <laughs> that otherwise. <laughs> well, you know, you and I in the East Surrey Revolutionary Soviet have known this pretty much from the start. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah having had to uh, kick him out of the group in about 1990. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that is the case. And, you know, if you live in Stoke Newington and write an Observer column for long enough, that is kind of going to happen to you. But I kind of went a lot easier on Stuart Lee in that piece because I think he's one of the very few people in the industry who has consistently thought about the influx of money and agents and a whole kind of industry infrastructure that's come in since he started doing stand-up because he starts mm. in the late 80s early 90s and you know as he's often said his inspirations are people like kevin mccallear simon munnery ted chippington who were kind of i mean they are all comedians but well all three of them really they're sort of somewhere between comedy and performance art you know the way yeah. that there's a bit someone of an outsider like element to the yeah, way they, they, they like, put mm, themselves across Definitely. like frank sidebottom being a sort of more extreme example of that mm. i guess or like malcolm hardy or someone but obviously what happens to comedy after newman and Badil, really you know as all this money comes pouring into it agents start coming in the panel shows the tv companies like the panel shows because they're cheap you know writing good comedy yeah. is hard the agents like them because it's a sort of steady stream of gigs for their clients. The comedians like them because it's good exposure and good money. So kind of everybody wins with all of those panel shows, really, you know, except ultimately the viewers, because that has become the dominant mode of satire, I think. And, you know, in a way that's often quite boring. I don't know if any of you have seen mm. that. I mean, I'm not a massive Harry Enfield fan by any means, but the Harry Enfield quiz show sort of sketch mm. that just... Oh, yeah cuts between versions of Nevermind the Buzzcocks, Mock the Week, Have I Got News for You. Yeah. And, you know, just sort of quite effectively capture the type of comedians and the type of comedy happening on those kind of shows at that point. And this yeah. is, like, well over a decade ago, you know, and they're, they're only, they've only got worse. Jesus, is it? Yeah, I think so. It, it, yeah. I know it was, it was a, yeah, it might be, actually. Early oh, yeah. 2010s, I think. Yeah, Christ. Uh, Same series, but mostly just kept on rolling since then. But, 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 you know, the whole infrastructure of comedy now... They put it very nicely on We Don't Talk About the Weather. Hugh was saying, look, I can't watch Bill Hicks now without cringing. But, you know, mm. for better or worse, you would never get someone like that now, at least not reaching, you know, even a reasonably large audience across mm -hmm. different forms of culture, but particularly comedy. It's a problem that comedians now have to fit into pre-established forms rather than being able to create their own. Mm. and mm. that takes away a lot of the scope to do interesting things, I think, and only suits a certain type of person. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Who's the guy? He's a playwright now. He wrote the first oh, Patrick series. Patrick Marber. Patrick Marber, yeah, yeah. And I was, like, looking into some of the projects he's done, and obviously a lot of them are very serious, not comedic. But I saw one which is, like, this really long-running show on Radio 4, and I was like, oh, what's this? Is this anything interesting? And it's just a fucking panel show. It's just another fucking panel show. But the twist is that they, like, sit in bunk beds while they're recording it. <laughs> on the radio? on the radio 
they're probably not even sat in bunk beds. They're probably just sat at a fucking mic studio that have her in a bed. Because, I mean, he was brilliant in on the hour and the day to day, but I'm now wondering if he realised it was satirical. Mm. If he's not maybe the greatest idiot summer <laughs> performance of all time. I mean, shit, maybe it's a great show. It's been running for like 10 years, but I think in Radio 4, that's a blink of an eye. In, but look, in... I mean, you know, we talked about Chris Addison on the thick of it, and, yeah. you know, the reason why he's so good as Ollie, who is like the worst character in that show, is probably because, you know, he's not a million miles away from him. It's like... a slight exaggeration of the guy behind yeah. him. Like how that leads to um... the best characters in wrestling. Sometimes it works in comedy. Well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we've sort of talked in the intro just briefly alluded to like that generation of comedians who like Morris Iannucci and people like Coogan, Peter Bainham that have worked with them as well. How they got into comedy is almost exclusively groups that would have been closed now. I'm not sure about Iannucci because he sort of got in as a radio producer doing comedy and stuff like that. That probably is still a difficult route but a route. But Chris Morris, if you look at his CV, it's like conventional route into being a DJ. But mm. from the start, he was ruthlessly satirising whatever channel he was on at the time, doing stuff like Wayne Carr. Show your appreciation for the great James O'Brien. Using the callers to the show only as foils for his often incredibly rude bits that he was doing. You know, someone like Bainham just sort of quit the Merchant Navy and was like, I'm a comedian now, and got in just on the strength of stuff he was writing and submitting to shows. None of that would happen now. In terms of the fortunes of the various people involved in the shows, like there's this piece by David Quantic where he reviews the CD release of On the Hour for Uncut, the rock magazine, for which he is a frequent contributor as a long-time Uncut reader, I can attest. And you read this review, which, by the way, is hiring somebody who was on the writing staff of the show to review it with a star rating and everything, not somewhat of a conflict of interest. But so fucking five star review of On the Hour from Quantic, which to be fair, um, it, it is really good. It does probably deserve a really positive review. But he talks about the first day he walked into the writer's room and he was like surrounded by luminaries such as Armando Inucci, Chris Morris, Steve Coogan. I don't think he was actually in the writing room, but nonetheless, he talks about all the people he met there. And he's like, I thought, God, what a load of losers. I'll leave these fucking pieces of shit in the dark. And then he's like, of course, 30 years later, and these people have numerous awards for their services to television, radio, comedy, world peace, and so forth, while I work in a shop. And I'm like, ha, he admits it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's the satirical show is a thinly veiled David Quantic character. Yeah, that, yeah. Would, yeah. that would fit into a very fine lineage, I think, of Forty Towers through to the office of the sort of embittered somebody who wanted to perpetually thwarted. Yeah, like, exactly. And you know, you could argue that. That's equally true of me and my media career. but um, Yeah, me and my podcasting career. Well, exactly, yeah. But, you know, I mean, actually, I mean, this is sort of changing the subject slightly, but obviously one of the things that does endlessly come up is dickhead right-wing comedians claiming they've been silenced and that they're not mm. allowed to be right-wing comedians. And I often think back to, again, Stuart Lee piece in the New States in about 10 years ago where he writes about right-wing stand-up specifically, and, you know, he ends the piece by talking about punching up and punching down. And, you know, that great punchline where he says, look, that's not a stand-up comic, that's just a cunt. 
you know, that piece like went viral. It was very good analysis, I think. But I often find myself thinking that actually, whereas stand-up, it does work a lot better if you're coming from, if not necessarily from the left, either a position that's quite hard to read or something that is not just aligning yourself with mm. what people can see as a sort of political orthodoxy. But actually, I think for right-wing <coughs> comedy or comedy that comes from a more conservative position, sitcoms are much more fertile ground, I think. I mean, yeah. unless it's kind of really, really obvious where you're aligning yourself. But I think you can have much more kind of subtly conservative comedy. You minor lot of comedy of... from these supporting characters are a bit weird in this specific but recognisable. You know, that, that's what a lot of it is. Yeah. And I mean, you guys did a very good episode on South Park a while back. And you, you <laughs> talked about one of my favourite episodes where the whole of Canada goes on strike. Uh, I didn't know you'd like, be a yeah. South Park fan. <laughs> oh, I love South Park. I mean, very, very guilty. I really, really like South Park. I mean, there's yeah. very, very things that make me laugh more than a really good episode of South Park, even mm. as I test their politics Absolutely. and think that most of the best episodes are the ones that are less obviously political. Yeah, in our episode, I was like, oh, to be fair, that transphobic episode was like five years ago. Then I looked it up and it came out like the previous year. <laughs> For fuck's sake. I mean, you know, like the South Park sort of creed of like, well, if you offend everyone, it's fair. And of course, you only ever hear cis white men saying that which is kind of interesting. But that episode of South Park where all of Canada goes on strike, it's like a satire of the Writers Guild strike, the last one in 2008. And as Shrieking Timban put it, it's incredibly funny and like a 25-minute manifesto for scabbing. <laughs> and yet, you know, I remember watching that and even as I was like, God, I fucking hate the politics here. I was like, this is so funny. So sitcom, there's a bit more room for ambiguity for holding multiple positions at once. Mm. And again, for that ambiguity in the thick of it, where it ends up, feeling like a quite conservative show because you know as i said earlier it is sort of saying well look the status quo is basically good it just needs to be run better and it's no surprise that those people mm. in hindsight are the backbone of starmerism but at the time that wasn't necessarily obvious yeah but also like the people in the thick of it are very awful and cynical so yeah. you can kind of personalize it and say, well, you know, it's not the system that's bad, it's these fucking idiots doing it. At the same time, you can always say, well, look, these people are behaving awfully, but they're just characters. And actually, that's kind of why Stuart Lee is kind of an interesting figure, because his comedy persona is quite different to the actual Stuart Lee, who you mm. can listen to on a Bob Dylan podcast or whatever. You can find interviews with Stuart Lee where he's just Stuart Lee rather than Stuart Lee. And there is a really interesting comic frisson about the fact that Stuart Lee is the kind of guy who, when he endorses the Lib Dems and condemns Corbyn over Brexit, you can spend a few months without realising that he's actually done it. It might look like he's just taking the piss. So. Well, and it's, you know, it gives himself a get-out clause, doesn't it, in case he's, like, made the wrong call. Again, there's some ambiguity there as to whether that's a sort of act of comic brilliance or cowardice or both. Yeah, well, cowardice can be very funny. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe Stuart Lee is professionally and sexually jealous of Russell Brand. The fact <laughs> that he can say that as a joke means that he can, you know, confess his deepest thoughts to Armando Inucci or Chris Morris. He's got the two guys who we're talking about. He's got them both as his hostile interrogator. On Johnny Street Vegas as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Not a notable figure in this generation of satirists. Although well, he I mean... was. He did come through on uh, Attention Scum. Oh, was who his... was involved in that? His TV break. Well, Simon Munnery obviously wrote yeah. most of it and before most of it, but there was a section called 24 Hour News, which was the news 
being read by a man who'd been up for 24 hours. And it was basically Johnny Vegas with his shirt undone, standing on the street corner with like a bottle in his hand, just going, fucking punk kids, come here. And, and yeah, just like screaming about, you know. Ranting just, and not. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm a huge fan of the show where Johnny Vegas played a pot dealer. Ideal. Oh, yeah. yeah, I knew you'd fucking remember that one. Yeah, yeah. Like, Love it's, that one. It's a great show. It's got so many good catchphrases. Like there's the guy, not Psycho. I'm on probation. Yeah, I'm on probation. There's that guy. There's Psycho Paul. There's Cartoon Head, who's the guy with the big mouse mask glued to his face, who looks exactly like Gavin Barwell, the former Conservative minister. <laughs> Many remember the classic moment on a post-2017 general election, real politic, when I sent Tom a picture of Gavin Barwell and he erupted oh, into yeah. laughter, going, look at his head, look at his <laughs> fucking head. Again, very good on an audio medium, I feel. Um, yeah, yeah, 100%. Actually somehow funnier when we can't yeah. see it. Um, yeah. yeah, could be any picture of him, and everyone just imagining <laughs> the most ridiculous one I've ever seen. Yeah, my dad met Gavin Barwell. I don't know how, yeah. it's, but I showed him Cartoon Head. He was like, "No, nah, he doesn't look like him at all." I'm like, <laughs> "You're in fucking denial." I mean, another thing in that, just I mean, if we're using that like Red Pepper article as a bit of a kind of base. Obviously, mm. in that article, I talk about how during the Corbyn period, and let's try not to be too self-congratulatory here, but shitposting was just often a lot funnier than these people. And I say in the piece that a lot of these people came out of Twitter very badly because it did put them under pressure to be funny all of the time. And there was a great running gag in, I know Geraint's a big fan as well, of Leon Herring's Richard Not Judy, mm. where Richard Herring would talk about seeing a comedian kind of off stage and Stuart Lee would just always go is he as funny in real life as he is on stage and of course they never were but Twitter did put real pressure on these people to be funny all of the time and obviously it revealed that a lot of the time they weren't but also revealed that you know as well as having just pretty terrible politics a lot of them were surprisingly thin-skinned for people who yeah. make a living out of apparently not being so I mean, before and, yeah, he went and... fully, fully off the particular deep end he has, Graham Linehan was already known for being one of the most thin-skinned people in the world. Oh my god, right? unbelievable. On a note of, like, industry gossip, didn't Linehan and Arthur Matthews get hired for the day-to-day -day because Stuart Lee and Richard Herring had some contractual dispute with the makers of On The Hour? Was it? I, uh... I, I'm not sure it was a like-for-like -like replacement, but Ian Utschie had to do, like, a late-night Stalinist purge for, like, the commercial release of On The Hour when they just Sized mm. all the Lee and Herring primarily written bits. Yeah, because it was like they had a dispute with one of the other writers over who created a character. Patrick Marber, yeah. They had a long-running beef with Patrick Marber, which slowly over time became more of a bit, but it was genuine bad blood. Almost entirely from Lee and Herring's end, I think Marber <laughs> had just sailed off into being a successful playwright. What was it? that They had one line about him that reminded me of like when I called Torsten Henriksen Bell a scandal. Scandinavian traitor on the last episode, which was a Cornish curmudgeon. <laughs> they, again, they used that one a lot, like Cornish curmudgeonly face. They used that a lot to settle scores. They had a bit in the Lee and Herring Fist of Fun book where they talk about people with Cornish faces and uh, <laughs> like Cornish them, phrenology. <laughs> they sort of combined it with celebration of mediocrity and did like a full page ripping on William Makepeace Thackeray, which seemed a bit <laughs> strange at the time, but and they absolutely would have known this by the way. He was a distant relation of Al Murray. <laughs> 
<laughs> so they were basically beefing well, him the whole way. Like several members of the fucking landed gentry. <laughs> I, I mean, if, if, if you find someone who was that rich or prestigious from that time, there's a good chance they're at least distantly related to our worry. In Stuart Lee's 2010 book, How I Escaped My Certain Fate, mm-hmm. Marber is referred to as a new Shakespeare. I, pre- I presume in, in an arch ironic fashion. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that that was like 15 years or more, more than that. In fact, after the fact, you know, they, they still and, and Richard Herring was doing it for a long time as well. Pretty much every project either of them did, they'd be like, one day get Patrick Robert in there somewhere. Uh, on the note of Iannucci, something I thought really funny that I had to share straight away with both Julia and Geraint was <laughs> that fucking Marina Hyde was a staff writer. <laughs> on the second and final season because it got cancelled by HBO of Iannucci's sci-fi sitcom uh, fucking what's it called there? Uh, Avenue why I, did I, he call I, it I, something so close notice, to Avenue Q? I didn't Avenue, even yeah. notice it existed like, until, you, until you told me the other day. Avenue 5. And one of the writers on it, who, to be fair, I think she's a talented writer. She wrote for The Thick of It and Veep as well. Georgia Pritchett. Geraint then did some research and found out that she is, Geraint, revealed... Another, a, another member of the story Pritchett family. She is, I believe, the sister of Matt i.e. Matt Pritchett, the Telegraph cartoonist who earns like 600 grand a year, whose dad was also a cartoonist, and whose daughter does really shit Venn diagram cartoons for The Guardian. Unreal. How much money this family have made out of bad, lazy cartoons? So I guess Georgia seems like the most talented. The talent of the family, yeah. I mean, you know, in that article I wrote, it was called How Corbin Unmasked Comedy, but my point wasn't really that Corbin himself did or said much to mm. unmask these people. It was more just their response to him the and reaction the movement to a really around him. Left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one, one of the most genuinely funny Corbin moments was when they had that celebration of Matt at the Telegraph and they invited yeah. him. And oh. they just put out a press release just saying none of the cartoons Mr. Corbin has seen about him were funny. Um, <laughs> and that is, you know, like, I mean, those Matt cartoons, I mean, it's easy to rag on political cartoonists because they are by and large yeah. terrible. But yeah. they're so bad. I mean, they are so bad. Like, I, yeah. I listened to an interview of Georgia Pritchett on this podcast that a couple of the actors from Veep do called Second in Command, where they rewatch Veep and have special guests on. It's basically like that one that the two guys from The Sopranos do. Um, right. And Georgia Pritchett was like, I don't have a middle name. Yep, yeah, nope, my parents just didn't give me a middle name. And I was like, fucking hell, your brother's gone even more minimalist. Just cut out the surname too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Monosyllabic names only for Matt. The other thing I wanted to, from like an hour ago, I almost said or something was, I think that Iannucci actually read that David Quantic five-star review in Uncut, the Conflict of Interest <laughs> review, where he was like, yeah, everyone else did really well and I'm a fucking loser who works in a shop. I think Iannucci actually read that and felt sorry for him because then Quantic was back on the writing staff for the final season of The Thick of It. And, and uh, wrote some very funny stuff for it. I mean, that amazing Star Wars monologue. Oh, was that, that, him? that was David Quantic. Yeah. Oh, the Quantic special. Yeah, no, he's on Veep. Veep is a fucking great show and what's wild about it is that the first four seasons before Iannucci 
got homesick and went back to the UK were all entirely written by British people. There is not a fucking word by, well, I mean, not counting the cast who were, as with most Iannucci projects, allowed to improvise quite extensively. There's not a fucking word written by an American on that show until season five when it was taken over by David Mandel, who was a writer on Curb and Seinfeld. Do you recall a document shared on the J Drive titled The Jonad Files? Uh, no, no, ma'am. No, that doesn't ring a bell. So it's not a word combining Jonah and Gonad? Not to I my can knowledge. confirm that that is exactly what it is, and Mr. Egan knows that. In fact, Mr. Egan, I was told that you encourage staffers to add to this glossary of abuse. I do not, uh, at this moment in time, recall the action, uh, nor the uh, document. Okay, maybe this action. will jog your memory. We have some extracts. J-Rock, Jizzy Gillespie, Jack and the Giant Jackoff, Galeon, Tinkerballs, Wadzilla, One Erection. Do we have to go through all of these? I'm not sure that I see the relevance. The witnesses claim they held their former colleague in high regard, and I am attempting to prove otherwise. Okay, yeah, sure, no, you can proceed. The Pointless Giant, The 60-Foot Virgin, Chimpanzee, Jonah Ono, Hagrid's Nutsack, Scrotum Pole, Transgender Formers, 12 Years a Slave to Jerking Off, Benedict Come in His Own Hand, Guy Scraper, The Cloud Botherer, Supercalifragilistic Expialy Dick Cheese, Teenage Mutant Ninja Asshole, Spubaca. Uh, my college friends called me uh, Tall McCartney. I preferred that. That's a good nickname. I wonder what the places are that Iannucci won't go in a, in a joke what he considers too far for even one of his evil characters to call another one. Criticising the EU. <laughs> Europhobia is where I draw the line. <laughs> the last acceptable prejudice is not following again, back if only... someone's pro-Europe. <laughs> but again, only after 2015-16. I mean, mm. Again, I was listening to 10,000 Posts a while ago. Phoebe was talking about how before 2016, the sort of dinner table wisdom about the eu was you know there were lots of things wrong with it and you know it's mm. democratically not very accountable and yeah. the way it treated greece wasn't great and they probably shouldn't let or actively lead to so many people drowning in the mediterranean but you know mm. as soon as that referendum was called it was like you know if you don't claim that the european union is a sort of wonderful liberal utopia then you are nigel farage and it's just you know again it's just fucking neoliberal breakdown derangement i mean it's that yeah. period of 2015 to 20 and i sort of concluded that piece in red pepper by saying there's obviously this restoration coming and these people are going to try to pretend that the Corbyn period never happened and certainly that they never behaved the way they did over it. And they're going to try and go back to normal and, you know, they'll satirise Starmer probably in whatever way they want to. But, you know, whatever they do is going to end up being ultimately like pretty mirthless and pretty worthless because, mm. you know, they're, good they're, rhyme, they're by the way. It was, wasn't it? I was very, very pleased with it. I was like, damn. I clicked my fingers like we were in a jazz club. (laughs) Apparently there was a a big experimental jazz scene in Red Hill in the 1960s, I found. Oh, wow. One for the true East Surrey heads. <laughs> I've written an article lately about the communist councillor in Hawley as well, so look out for that. Do you reckon there any ever been any communist councillors in Ilford? Um, 
<laughs> Almost certainly, yes. Um, Could you write about them, please? Me I in love the 1930s. Um, Have you heard yeah. the one about, like, in, like, uh, Did any of them mysteriously disappear? Like... <laughs> yeah. Like, it's so fun. Like, it, just because it's Ilford, like, whenever I read about some, like, horrible deaths that happened yeah. in Ilford, I find it so funny. Like, in, like, 1927, a bunch of children and adults as well went into a pavilion to shelter from a thunderstorm, and it got struck by lightning, and because it was a metal building it conducted the lightning and all these ilford people died oh yikes i wouldn't find that funny but it's because they're all from ilford (laughs) (laughs) dude it's like 1927 kind of bigotry it's from yeah ilford dude statute of limitation Uh, uh, it's like a hundred years ago or maybe like 80 i can't remember i think you could do a good sort of hp lovecraft style story set in 1927 ilford actually (laughs) without the racism like but just to read Geraint's fucking mind here, I reckon he was then going to make a joke saying, actually, with even more racism. Here's a question. How far would the name Mike Gapes have got for a character through an Ianucci writing room? I mean, it's more of a Martin Amos name, isn't it? Yeah, what, his people are all called, like, Barry Muslim and, like, uh, Tony <laughs> well, I mean, there was, Sex Offender. <laughs> there was a very funny line in a Frankie Boyle piece for The Guardian where he talks about a new Martin Amis novel with characters like Billy Darts and Dave Rubbish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not to be confused with Ian Rubbish, the famous pro-Thatcher punk rock singer from a Saturday Night Live sketch. Thanks! <laughs> <laughs> To you, I say bad night. <laughs> we thought he was being ironic. We thought it was a joke. It turned out he just really liked her. You keep me clothes safe. You're a very special light day. One of the only good Saturday Night Live Oh my God, yeah. I mean, look, you know, history. My flatmate at the time was sort of showing me the Alec Baldwin Trump sketches. And I was like, look, this oh is this God. is just Trump. Like, actually, if anything, yeah. it's less ridiculous. It's slightly um, less ridiculous we, and less funny we, than the actual... We slate yeah. British satire, but fucking hell, oh like, American God, satire is some absolute dreck. And also, it's... it doesn't help for all these late-night talk show hosts who do it. They've got to all be satirists as well. And it's like, you know, you wouldn't like expect Michael Parkinson to send up the events of the day in a withering way, would you? It's Genuinely, like... the, the whole thing is coasting off them stumbling into a good initial cast in like 1975, 76. <laughs> and that's been enough to propel it for like 40 yeah. years. 50 years. <laughs> yeah, nearly 50. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to beat that with fucking Have I Got News For You, which oh, is even God. worse again. But it's just bizarre, the inertia of these things. Loads of good and funny people have been part of the cast on saturday night yeah. live but not but... one of them has ever actually been funny on saturday night live <laughs> <laughs> the amount of good comedians have been either writers or performers or both on that it should be a hell of a lot less patchy than it is by a long way but uh, again even, you know like ignoring to... the banal political turns it's taken to go back to what i was sort of saying earlier about the difference between having to work within these forms that are created by somebody yeah. else and the forms yeah. that you create yourself andy calvin was on saturday night live right yeah yeah oh, he right. was yeah they, they, uh, he was, they, he was doing his own like... act on it like yeah it wasn't... 
but you know the funniest wrestling thing, women i was gonna say i mean the intergender wrestling stuff which yeah. is basically this incredibly long performance piece that he devised with jerry lawler yes i mean that is unbelievably funny i mean i frequently steal one of the lines in there one of the moments i've laughed the hardest watching something is where Kaufman comes on a neck brace because like jerry lawler's just kept the shit out of him for like fighting all these women yeah. uh, and just comes on a neck brace he's like i will give five thousand dollars to anyone who can put jerry lawler back in the hospital and it's so funny i keep using that line to jordan peterson on twitter actually and like, i'll put you back in the hospital <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favorite little deep cuts from throughout uh, oh actually because i was talking about mike gates a minute ago i should just just mention ianucci did this little half hour bbc thing and it was like time trumpet almost 10 years before time trumpet it was called clinton his struggle with dirt and it was supposed to be a documentary from the future they talk about the events of 1998 i guess whenever the monica Lewinsky scandal happened yeah and they talk about how back in those days americans still spoke a language approximating english so whenever they show like the monica Lewinsky older character talking she'll start saying he gave me a squiddle on my rumpy pumpy and then the voiceover will start like we made love in a beautiful and sensitive <laughs> fashion and then it ends with the voiceover will cut off and it'll go back to her like right in my toll booth something like these are, these are just approximations of what they yeah. say this is my twisted subconscious rock Vinicius that you're hearing but it's his joke format <laughs> like, so that's a very like partridge explanation of a joke I've been listening to I Partridge the audiobook of his memoir the blame for this momentous upheaval is laid at the mouth of one woman, Monica Lewinsky. What was it about her that in the space of 12 months turned her into the most notorious wide person the world has ever seen? Tonight, 30 years on, speaking in Knob Americano, she explains. Well, all cats slam it back a rumpy. Everyone boils it down to sex, but it was about love. I loved him. I mailed a guy, me Medipon. I gave him my heart and called him all sorts of affectionate names like you there and Mr. Dirty Legs. Mighty spunky thighs. I highly recommend listening to the Partridge books on audiobook, by the way, because it's it, you, you got Coogan doing it. It's literally just like more another series of Partridge. There's so many recurring jokes throughout Clinton, his struggle with dirt about Clinton doing weird sexual shit with milk. <laughs> I'm gonna have to download the audio of the video off YouTube and do a little supercut of all the milk, the hot milk moments. In. For White House security cameras show that the president merely wanted a second opinion on whether his milk was off. You know you want to check the data. There's no lots No, I, I would say that. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's, you know, it's a nice fluid filter. My house daddy was a mean creamer. He guzzled him a whole cow each time. My husband liked he milk. He drank at least eight pints a day, so he would often want a second opinion about his milk. Now, is that a criminal offence? Is Dad a bust your ass machine? The tape shows an affectionate, sometimes playful side to the relationship. Lewinsky asks the president if he wants some tea, and he insists he gets the milk. I got some nice milk to show you. A little later, as Lewinsky tries to get affectionate, he asks if they can just watch the bottle of milk together. She agrees. This continues for about an hour until the security guard comes in. In the report, Starr accused Clinton of obstructing justice by trying to hide gifts he'd received from Monica Lewinsky. These included 10 bottles of milk, which the president hid for four months under his bed. 
me so snug with my man parping like a cow that I, I was so used to my husband coming to bed stinking of milk that I didn't think to look under the bed. But when I saw what was there, some of the milk was over 15 weeks old. The stench. Looking on from across the Atlantic was Tony Blair, who now insisted his meetings with the president should include a cup of tea. Whenever Tony had a cup of tea with the president, he would always try to drag it out. He'd say, this needs topping up with milk. I think he just wanted to get the milk close to uh, the president's face. He'd say, um, uh, Bill, would you like some cream? He just wanted to see Bill Clinton pouring milk tight up upon his face. I can't <laughs> believe he's travelled back in time and plagiarised us like that. Bastard. Yeah, as outrageous. <laughs> just more copycats stealing our words and our, our style. Deep Van Morrison reference there. I will get ripped off my soul. So then 2004, the stupid version, pretty much does the same thing, moving closer to the format of Time Trumpet, which was just three years away at this point. But on that, he has all these talking heads like Richard Ayoade, Matthew Holness, Adam Buxton, Stuart Lee, in fact. I mean, it's really funny the way he engages with the talking heads, getting them to talk about 2004 and this. He says to Adam Buxton, like, he asks him kind of inquisitively, he's like, could you say that this has been a great year for television and adam buxton's like hmm i don't know and, and, and he, she's like no no could you say that this has been a great year for television and adam buxton's just like oh uh yeah and he, and she's like no could you say it has been a great year for television and he's like oh yeah it's been a great year for television. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, there's some really funny stuff like that. Could you say it's been a great year for television? I think it's been... No, 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 no. Could you say it's been a great year for television? Yes. Could you say it's been a great year for television? It's been a great year for television. Thank you. But the bit that stuck out to me, and going back to the disappointment, the crushing disappointment of Stuart Lee becoming a fub pee, <laughs> there's this amazing bit where Stuart Lee, he basically does a whole fucking rap, but not literally a rap, as in, in, in the colloquial, like the term that like they use on 1970s Neil Young live albums, where Neil's like <laughs> rambling stonily to the audience, a rap. Stuart Lee just goes on a whole rap, <laughs> not the fur cue oozy lover routine oh dear, yeah. <laughs> but he goes off a, 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 on a whole spiel shake it up a bit about but he basically does the post-truth politics thing mm. he, he he's talking about tony blair he yeah. talks about like the weapons of mass destruction and how he's like oh it was great turned out in politics it didn't matter how true something was they showed a clip of like tony blair saying i've seen the evidence but i disagree with the evidence or something like that and Stuart lee's like it's great, you know, you can get compelling, ironclad, inarguable evidence, and you can just say, no, I don't agree with that. It's fantastic. And then like, fast forward to, like, 2016, he's probably at an another Europe is possible meeting saying, and this thing, post-truth politics, has <laughs> come along. Yeah. Judgments aren't the same as facts. Instinct is not science. In his speech, Blair claimed he was right to go with his instincts, even if his instincts later proved to be wrong. I only know what I believe. It's great, there's a lot of people nowadays, aren't there, the nanny state, you know, telling us we shouldn't do particular things because they're factually wrong. 
to do and that there are basic fundamental arguments why they will not work. And to see a Prime Minister say, I'm not interested in facts, I'm not interested in facts and accurate information, I'm just going to go with this kind of mad idea I've got. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, Johnny Rotten would do. I only know what I believe. To, like, Evil Knievel trying to jump over the Grand Canyon, you know, people said to him, you can't do that, you can't get enough acceleration on a motorbike to jump over the Grand Canyon. And he said, well, why? And they went, well, because of wind speed and velocity and gravity and various scientific things. And he went, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And if you remember, he was killed trying to do that, but he did do it, even though it was wrong. It was wrong and there was no way it could work. I only know what I believe. When the first person said, I'm going to put this bread in this toaster and I'm going to make hot, crispy bread and then I'm going to eat it, someone probably said, don't be ridiculous. No one would want to eat hot, solid bread. Bread is meant to be uh, kind of floppy and cold. But the, uh, someone did that and now, What's the most popular food in the UK? Toast. But if that person had gone just with public opinion, we would not have anything to spread marmalade on now. Well, yeah, this is it. I mean, let's not go too far down that particular avenue because it's another conversation entirely. But yeah, absolutely. And again, Time Trumpets satires of Tony Blair. Very, very funny. It looks back at Tony Blair as having been driven completely mad by what happened with Iraq. And again, you're just not going to see satirists doing stuff like that now, even if they do end up taking the path Iannucci has taken of over-identifying with Alistair Campbell. Because of political um, correctness. Well, exactly. You can't make any jokes about Tony Blair's uh, mental health or the woke brigade. Nothing structural. It's no no structural industry stuff. It's just uh, wokeness. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, Our next guest, Andrew Doyle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. give the other side. Because we're centrists. Yeah, exactly. So we want to let both sides. Well, surely if you're a centrist, you don't even want the right-wing perspective. Yeah, that's true. No, no, no. We're going to have Andrew Doyle on and then to further weigh it towards the right, we're going to have that bald guy on afterwards sunlight is sometimes the best effect yeah um, <laughs> it will be shining off his head exactly that. yeah it will just blind to you with it yeah. you know, <laughs> truth bombs it's okay. amazing actually because lee kern has kind of a similar name to lee hurst but is actually possibly even less funny yeah uh, juliet you said you haven't seen veep no. I did, did you just in... assume it was like a sellout kind of thing? You know? <laughs> I didn't make any. I didn't make the any American remake. It. I just sort of never got round to it. I did watch In the Loop recently, which I think has actually aged better than the thick of it. And There's it's interesting to see. To it, given the There's a bit more bite to it. And it's, yeah, exactly. It's interesting to see them take broadly those characters. I think Tucker is the only character Don't completely ported over from. The thick of it. Oh, wherever. Jamie as well. Jamie's in it. Uh, oh, not in it much. He's not a main character. You don't deserve to live. And yeah. Sam, Malcolm's uh, long-suffering secretary. Yeah, so Malcolm started reported <laughs> over, but basically you've then got Chris Addison and yeah. others playing the same character, but not the same character. Yeah, you've got James um, Gandolfini as well. Which they actually spice works quite well if you almost make Addison's characters like generic briefcases. Like that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that was intended, yeah. but... Oh, there's fucking loads of the guns. Oh my god, works. absolutely. But in that film, you see Malcolm not just pushing around minor ministers into watering down an already shite PFI project. Yeah. He's actually 
doing really evil shit in that. He's creating the pretext for war for the Americans. So a guy who could portray his Alistair Campbell character like that, it really is remarkable that a few years later, as you observe in your Red Pepper piece, Juliet, he was defending him against being purged from the Labour Party for endorsing the Lib Dems. Maybe this is a good thing to lead on to, is the role of comedy in a wider media ecosystem of sort of light entertainment that is used to whitewash these reputations. I mean, you know, mm. Alistair Campbell being in character, a sort of particularly knowing and cynical manipulation of this sort of infrastructure, having made several attempts to rehabilitate himself, has found himself through his kind of opposition to Brexit and through, you know, his kind of like, we just want civil, sensible, kind politics and not the evil, bullying, hard left. Again, mm-hmm. this sort of post-truth thing that Blair and Campbell were doing 20 years ago, still very much doing now. Yeah, um, and which and, like, and it's also just key to state that all these people had observed them doing 20 years ago, exactly, and then acted yeah. like it was completely new. Yeah, <laughs> and it wasn't and it wasn't them doing it, and in fact those mm. people have been a kind of bulwark against it, which, you know, again is its own post-truth kind of process. But Have I Got News For You, I think, has been particularly pernicious in breaking down the cordon sanitaire between politicians, journalists, and satirists you need those all to be distinct categories so when you have a program Mm. that basically mushes them all together and you know politicians love going on have i got news for you it's like the best thing for them and it has been for well over two decades there was i've I've Um, been trying to find a decent quality scan of this for a long time but the harry hill fun book from 25 years ago now had like a two-page cartoon about harry trying to cheat to get the answers on have i got news for you so he can look really clever and politically astute and yeah get, getting beaten to it by ken livingston who was doing the same <laughs> <laughs> the sharpest mind in the game when he <laughs> had red ken um yeah but, but yeah and i do feel that comedy in general and those sort of panel shows in particular and particularly that one and, you know, the chumming up between Iannucci and Campbell and, you know, his kind of over-identification with his subject. You contrast that with that Chris Morris interview about satire just becoming this exotic display for the court. And I think it's actually something even worse than what Morris is saying it is. I think it's not just an exotic display for the court, it's an integral part of how the court functions. Although, I mean, I think Morris is more or less saying that. It's very um, symbiotic, I think, this relationship yeah. in the court between the politicians and the media. And a great example of this kind of bottom-feeding human centipede relationship is a while ago sort of for the podcast and sort of out of my grim fascination i probably would have done anyway even if we didn't actually end up turning it into content um, i listened to this thing which was like armando inucci in conversation with jess phillips and jan ravens about the death of satire or something and half of it was like jan ravens complaining that she wasn't actually doing blackface she was just doing black voice for her diane abbott impression so it wasn't racist the other half you just got this great sense of how phillips loves she talks about how she was hanging out with the hosts of the daily mash the mash report whatever while a major piece of news came in she loves that she can be this politician but who's kind of a media figure as well oh yeah you know she's she's a media grifter who has used being an mp as her route into it and they fucking love the media people like they absolutely love that an elected MP like Jess Phillips is giving them the time of day. Like I, I mean, say, it's totally symbiotic. It's it's just replicating like Malcolm Tuckins. It's the Tuckins fucking yeah. But I mean, it's network. like it's, it's the centrist equivalent of Jordan Peterson and Milo Yiannopoulos. It's someone who sort of claims to be a kind of outsider saying the unsayable, but actually saying the things that you know the establishment wants to hear and the second she says something that is not what the establishment wants to hear she'll be out 
And I kind of hoped that one of the better consequences of the Corbyn project being defeated, that we hear less from these kinds of people. But no, it turns out that you have to do things much worse than anything Jess Phillips has done before we can fucking get rid of you, as the sort of media career of Alistair Campbell is continuing to prove. Oh, Christ. So jarring. I remember a few years ago when In The Loop came out, Mark Kermode, himself actually a huge liberal melt, but at the time, I guess, there was still a trace of the former Trotskyist in him. (laughs) So he sat with Alistair Campbell, and he was like, yeah, I'm against the Iraq war. I think that was bad. And Campbell's like, ooh. I'm scared. Mm. And like, <laughs> so Kermode makes his criticisms and they watch the film together. And Campbell's like, no, nah, I don't think it was realistic. I, I, I'm not mean to people. <laughs> and then, but, the, but then he can't resist like a bit of a legend. Mark Kermode's like, come on, come on. You, there's legendary stories of you shouting and swearing at people. What's the worst thing you said? And it's so pathetic. Campbell's <laughs> like... I think I once told someone to fuck the fuck off. I have a great sympathy for anything which portrays politics as essentially venal and crass because I think that to a great extent it is. Yeah, and, I th- and I think that that's, but I think that that's your legacy, which is, why, which is why I want to know whether or not it upsets you to think that that would be taken as your legacy. No, it upsets me to think that somebody who seems to be quite an intelligent bloke like you would think that politics is venal and crass, when I could sit down and explain to you how politics has delivered most of the great things that have happened in the world in its history. And if, you, if, you, if people like you just go round the place as you do, spreading that message that politics is venal and politics is crass, the only people who are really great are the kind of creators who go into the arts and make movies and all the rest and carry on spreading that worldview, then don't be surprised if young people then start to say, well, you know, why should we give a shit about the world? And I actually think that you guys, with the attitudes you have, uh, have to face up sometimes to your own responsibilities about the impact that has upon the way that the world works. So scepticism is great, but what you, the view you've just expressed to me is cynicism. But do you... And, it's, and, and you know, it's, it's just so lazy, it's so easy, uh, and you should know better. What was the worst swearing you ever did when you were working? I did used to say, fuck the fuck off. It's like, oh, did you? Again, it's just like the cunts in the leaked Labour report. These people are kind of like the people in the thick of it, but they're witless and unfunny. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever heard anything about Alistair Campbell saying anything funny? You've heard about him saying things that are mean... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, something that was kind of funny because it was so cuntish, I guess, but to the people I wanted it to be was the 2010 general election when mm. the big majority for David Cameron that everyone thought he would get obviously failed to materialise. And Alistair Campbell was on Sky News with Adam Bolton and Bolton was talking about, you know, the chaos that would happen because of this result. And Campbell just goes, look, Adam, I'm sorry this election hasn't gone the way you obviously wanted it to. Like, knowing full well that Bolton would completely lose his shit. Which <laughs> oh, yeah. No, OK. No, that Fair was, play. I mean, that, that was, was you know, funny, I mean, right, I, yeah, I mean, that sort of creates <laughs> a funny moment. But, yeah, OK, I mean, fine. Give Alistair his due. 
I stand um, corrected. Otherwise, though, but again, there's probably centrists who would have like a list of like 10 things that Campbell has said that they thought were funny. And it sort of goes back to what we're saying earlier about the fact that there's so little, not necessarily shared reality, because we are all still just about sharing the same timeline of events, but <laughs> there's so much fragmentation, the sort of perception of those events, these sort of weird mm. political alliances, because like most people I know on the left, for example, think that Trump is funny. Not necessarily that he is like deliberately funny, but the presence yeah. of a Trump fact of like American politics getting to the point where that happens and the things that happen as a result. You know, most people on the left have a whole load of Trump tweets and a whole load of images or just things he said or did that they find funny. And obviously people on the right found him funny. And it's just sort of people in the centre. I mean, if you yeah, meet... Have a certain, you no decency, sir. If you meet a certain type of American liberal and tell them that you find Trump funny, you won't even get yeah. as far as saying, look, I hate his politics, before yeah, they just, what... like, scream at you. <laughs> you think it's funny to take children away from their parents? Yeah, well, quite. No, I, <laughs> I, think, like... I think it's no, funny... No, but I think like... it's funny to call him Rob DeSantis repeatedly. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's funny to, like, shut down the government, invite a whole American football team in. And then stand under the picture of Abraham Lincoln in the prestigious White House dining room <laughs> with your arms outstretched like a fucking idiot grinning in front of like a platter of Big Macs. Like that like, is funny. Like a whole fucking kitchen's <laughs> worth of McDonald's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I did everything right and they and indicted, they indicted me. me. They indicted me. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's uh, so yeah. funny. The corrupt yeah, so... Biden administration, despite keeping layers of documents in a garage but is easily accessible to the outside public have seen fit to indict me yeah <laughs> <laughs> he was keeping them in chinatown so oh no i was always talking about keeping the documents yeah, it's in just chinatown the way that cunt says china is just the funniest yeah, china. thing in yeah oh, lenin Vladimir yeah. Lenin. Lenin, as they say. Just before we came on, I like rewatched the clip of him coming onto a rally dancing to YMCA, and like it's so funny. <laughs> oh, really... the, the latest one. Who the hell is Ice Spice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that is classic. Yeah, so yeah, you know, and again, you know, the sort truly of... a great comedian of our age. Ah. Uh, uh, uh. You know, satirizing this kind of centrist restoration, which is probably going to happen in the States as well. I mean, I think, mm. you know, I mean, it's hard to predict anything with much certainty at the moment, but there's a good possibility that the boxes thing is finally the thing that does for Trump. Not necessarily, but more so than all the other stuff, you know, like Diane Feinstein trying to get him on like an obstruction of justice charge in like 2018 or something. Yeah, well, um, it's kind yeah. of like all these scandals because there's so many like bullshit ones. Like they yeah. blow up and you just think, oh, that's fucking nothing. It's like Boris Johnson's parties. I was like, oh, why are they fucking wanging on about this boring shit? I do still find it boring and don't really care. Same, but yeah. I now understand the political utility of why. Yeah, that exactly. Bring him down. Uh, your guy flying rodent on Twitter is you know pretty astute about all of this, and he was actually talking about in the loop and the way malcolm tucker uses this sort of bullshit thing with the mp's constituent like an argument over a fence as a way of getting him to resign you know yeah. obviously because he's like opposing the war or he might oppose the war and that's a very good line on the way these scandals are manufactured to bring down the individuals and not the system and again you know a decent satire would have that much more in mind i think i mean the thick of it has it in there to a point and obviously in the loop has it I think more pointedly. But again, I think if you were going to write a satire of contemporary politics, 
you would make that a bit more central to the premise. And again, like I said, it mm. goes back to this idea of if you made a good sweeping satire now, it would be set in newsrooms. It wouldn't be set in Parliament. The last show that I saw depicting a fictionalised version of a newsroom wasn't the uh, Aaron Sorkin show of a newsroom. Oh, God, that sounds wretched. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was this British one. It was like about... To drop the two- dead donkey. No, 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 it was bad. Uh, it, it, it was like a drama series from recent years, uh, right, like a couple right. of years ago. And it was mad. You had, So the premise was that you have like the good paper, the nice paper, uh, which, yeah. which is like, it's so basically The Guardian. Yeah. And it's like the editor's Sonia Soda and the leading journalist is James Ball. Literally, I'm not even kidding. Oh, um, God. And then in contrast to great people like Sonia Soda and James Ball on the liberal side, you then on the other side, you have like the evil son and the journalists who work at both are like nice and well-intentioned. They may end up working together and uh... the editors are all friends and really they're trying to do the same thing, but they just have different ways of going about it. It's fucking stupid. It's terrible. It's exactly as bad as you would imagine a show that has a barely fictionalized heroic James Ball as one of its principal characters to be. But that wasn't even satire, so why the fuck am I talking about it? Well, look, we've we've talked quite a bit about contemporary satire, recent satire. Maybe the way to start concluding then is to just think a little bit about, I mean, you know, making predictions is a kind of mugs game at this point. But (laughs) is this stuff just going to just carry on for the foreseeable future? I mean, it probably is, isn't it? It's tempting to think that there'll be some sort of blow up as a lot of this generation, you know, retire or go and do something else. But actually, whether it's David Baddiel or Ian Lucci or whatever. He's gone from being a public intellectual Exactly. Um, Yeah, he's gone serious. But, you know, these these people as kind of cultural figures, they're going to be around for a while. They're going to be around for at least another 10 or maybe even 20 years. So for people who are interested in satire and want to think about politics and have a sense of humour about it, you know, what happens? What do we do? What avenues are there? Um, Podcasts. Our our podcast specifically is subscribed Mm -hmm. to the Patreon. (laughs) Well, what's interesting is actually a satirical show that's very popular at the moment is Succession, which is actually written by a thicker bit writer. But I mean, without having seen Succession, because like I was saying <laughs> earlier, you know, Juliet, when I was like, oh, have you not watched Veep? Because you thought it was just some sellout shit. I have not watched Succession because I assume for basically this is the final season. So its entire run, but it was just some sellout shit where Jesse Armstrong, like, takes a bunch of American money and stops, like, making actual jokes. It's like, I'll write as withering put-down, but the actors play it as drama, so it's not funny. And I'm like, okay, I like things that are funny, so I didn't watch it, but apparently it's really good. I mean, um, you've noticed... <laughs> it's quite funny as well at times. I've yeah, I <laughs> nothing nothing i've spoken about really has been from the last 10 years i just don't find that much time to watch tv anymore um so you've not seen succession either no no i mean it's all i mean the trouble with this stuff is just like there's always so much of it i've not seen the wire i've not seen mad men i've not seen breaking bad TV you know and is I, a big investment of yeah time. it really is mm. and you know I, I need that time to watch non-league football so yeah <laughs> yeah well that's generally why british shows are a bit better if you've got a very busy schedule because they make yeah. like two hours of it and then it's like fucking hell we kept that show well, going you know, in a long time let's PBA, <laughs> pbs can show britain's longest running sitcom and like show all seven episodes yeah um... exactly exactly <laughs> one thing i wanted to get to because i feel like we focus so much on ianucci in this mm. discussion 
I want to talk about Chris Morris just a bit before we wrap up. And, like, what do we like about him? Why do we like Chris Morris? Because I well, do like Chris Morris. I think he's good. Well, he very sensibly, I mean, he turns down close to 100% of media appearances, which is why that Channel 4 interview about satire and the court around his last film and the NHS thing that we've been talking about. You mm. know, it's, it's like a real event when Chris Morris does anything on the media. You know, he'll only go on TV or make a public appearance if he really feels it's worth it. And, you know, obviously that's good for two reasons. I think one is it just protects you from knowing too much about his opinions and protects him from the kind of double down syndrome that mm. leads Graham Linehan from having a few people on Twitter go, this joke's a bit transphobic to my wife's left me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's good. And then obviously the second thing that's good about that is it means that you do get a sense and it's reflected in the work that he's not just like kind of playing an industry game. He's not in it for personal fame or fortune or whatever. It does give his work a bit more creative integrity. I mean, actually, I was a bit disappointed by his last film, The Day Shall Come. I didn't think it was particularly funny or well-targeted. And if he was the kind of person who was making a film like once every two years, you would just think, well, all right, this one's a bit of an off day. You know, there'll be like, another fucking one. hell. Not going like... to hear from him in 10 years now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it wasn't a film that was worth Ooh. waiting 10 years for. I mean, I actually had some issues with Four I Lines. I did like it. Uh, I liked Four Lions as well, but I kind of felt The War on Terror is an interesting one to satirise because I actually feel something like In the Loop is a much better satire than Four Lions, but Four Lions is a lot Mm. funnier. Okay, Uh, yeah. In the Loop looks at the most powerful people in the conflict and how they're behaving and does kind of satirise that. Whereas, you know, Four Lions, I mean, it's an interesting one because, you know, the terrorists are killing people, you know, the killing people who've done nothing wrong. But in another way, they are the least powerful people in this conflict. And, you know, the film makes a virtue out of that. I mean, the film's humour is the gulf between their revolutionary rhetoric and their pathetic Mm. practice. Uh, and as, well, all, almost all um, the people in the film are the lower status end of it. You know, you've got the sort of inept snipers and crap police negotiators, the CCTV manager guy. It's the complete opposite end of the scale all the way, really. But that's that. I mean, that is very funny because you do have this seismic conflict, and you know, this thing that was the sort of dominant narrative of yeah. the West for nearly a decade until the financial crash. And so that's obviously funny. But then the other thing that I think is really funny in Four Lions that doesn't really come over in The Day Shall Come is. Chris Morris's use of language, which you know, yeah. and I, I did a Twitter. Yeah. I, I think moving tweet. it to America like untethered mm. him. Well, yeah, well, I think I think it probably did. I mean, for I did that a, one yeah. film. I mean, I did a tweet a couple of weeks ago. I was just bored and waiting for a train, and I was just like, "What phrase from Brass Eyes become part of your kind of everyday language?" And it was yeah. insane. It got yeah. two thousand. I think. It, was it was one of those ones where you replied to it and I was making sure to look at all the other ones as well because yeah, it just exactly. reminded me of so many great lines that um, yeah, The Pedophiles delivering justice under men who prey sex on our children <laughs> Men who have sacrificed the right to a life without pain I know how they look I know how they think I was one for Christ's sake Ten years ago, I had designs on my own kids. I knew that one day I might act on them. So to stop me, I shot myself in my own head. I'd killed the pedophile in me. Now I do the same for society. Because these men have chosen the way of the animal. They don't deserve punishment. They deserve gunishment. The Pedophile starts next week on 4, straight after Pedophile Island. A hundred kids and an ex-offender on an island full of cameras. What's going to happen? 
Four Lions has so many brilliant lines in it. I mean, my personal favourite is where Riz Ahmed's character rebukes Barry, the white convert, for buying silver nitrate off Amazon, which is quite <laughs> incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah, some really, yeah, really like, good stuff in there. Does, the I love when he does the rap. Like, I'm a Mujahideen and I'm making a scene. Now you're going to feel what the boom boom means. The one that always cracks me up is... Rubber dingy rapids, bro. When they're when they're in when they're in the terrorist camp and genuinely not making many friends, and one of the leaders of the terrorists is just going off on them, and he says, "Who do you think you are, James Fuck Bond?" And the delivery of that—I've <laughs> not been just to sit there, fuck James Bond. Fuck Bond. Incredible. I mean, Barry's constant refrain of "We bomb the mosque" is just so funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Julia, as you were pointing out earlier, Morris. Whilst Iannucci has throughout his career primarily been a political satirist, Morris has primarily been more concerned with the form of television coverage. Four Lions was really his first expressly political work of satire. Um, But even then, you can't really place it on a spectrum. No, it's hard to, but it is, I do think it's interesting and admirable that his last two, and in fact only two feature films, have both been about the war on terror, Western foreign policy, counterterrorism. Yeah. It's really interesting that he went all up. In fact, there's an interview from around the time I think Jam aired, which is a brilliant show we haven't oh, really God, mentioned. Oh, so good, yeah. It gets so weird, it, it's yeah. hard to say. It's, I'm sure it's satirical of social values and mores. Yeah, it doesn't really fit into what we're talking about. It's though, not political yeah. satire, for sure. But around the time he said, oh, I don't think I'd know how to address the war on terror in Mm. comedy he told simon hattenstein in that interview and it's quite interesting for 20 years on he's done two feature films and both of them have been about that and then obviously there's bushwhacked as well proto cassette boy stuff where he edited the george bush state of the union address to be like my fellow americans we meet today to threaten the world and that's just like my favorite bit in that where bush is just like america stands for things around the world america stands for torture Mutilation with hot irons. Rape. Mr. Speaker, members of Congress, and fellow citizens, every year, by law and by custom, we meet here to threaten the world. The American flag stands for corporate scandals, recession, stock market declines, blackmail, burning with hot irons, mutilation with electric drills, cutting out tongues, terror, mass murder and rape I mean you know there's more than anyone else you sort of watch or read Chris Morris stuff and you're just like god I genuinely can't believe you've said that and you've been able to get it through the publishing process I mean I remember buying and I really wish I'd kept the Observer pullout that Morris and Iannucci did in 2002 on the war on terror and the only bit I actually really remember is there was a sidebar saying like 9-11 in numbers uh, one of the numbers was 93, and the caption just said, percentage of Brits whose first reaction was, yes, only to subsequently claim to be appalled. <laughs> have, <laughs> you, fucking hell. have you heard the day-to-day sketch where yeah, like, yeah, they, 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 they reunited to do a couple of extra yeah. things for the DVD, just audio things a few years after the show, mm. and they did a sketch where Christopher Morris, anchor supreme, calls up Peter O'Hanorah. Yeah, yeah. Don't anyone know how to say his name? 
Oh, Hammer, 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 yeah. There you go. He calls him up and it's like the day of 9-11. It's 9-11. It's September the 11th. The World Trade Center's falling. And he calls him up and he's like, what are you seeing there at the World Trade Center, Peter? And he's just like, oh, well, uh, there's a lot of meetings going on. It's a busy, bustling day in the canteen here at Tower One. And Chris Morris is like, are you not falling victim to any falling debris? And he's like... Uh, no, no, uh, that must be the other tower. <laughs> he just turns up. The, the bit just... where he's like pretending to be in the tower and he's just going, I'm out, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, no, I was in my hotel room Absolutely all along. Absolutely incredible. Fucking yeah, brilliant. that was really, really fun. And again, you know, genuinely kind of close to the edge. Right, so Peter, can you tell us exactly what the situation is currently in New York? Well, the situation, I'd say it's eggs over easy for the Germans, eggs over not bad for the Japanese and eggs over pretty grim for the Russians. So the meetings are going ahead? That's right, Chris. And where are they being held? Here at the World Trade Centre. You're at the World Trade Centre? Yes. Whereabouts exactly in the World Trade Centre are you? I'm, I'm in, that, uh, in the restaurant, the Windows on the World restaurant, Chris. Floor 107, sipping a cappuccino. Floor 107 no longer gives a particularly good view of New York. Well, it does from where I'm sitting. It's Chris. now part of the basement. I think... Yeah. <laughs> uh, pulling my leg, Chris. Are you near a television? Yes. I don't, I don't I'd like you to turn it on. I'm going to a television in the restaurant. There's one, one of those... Yes, just get on with it, corner. please. Right, the television's on. Tell me what you can see. Well, it's, it's quite bizarre. I'm actually looking at a, an image of the World Trade Center. I could almost be looking at myself if I waved. Uh, what can you see? Well, there's a, there's a plane in, in one of them. Yeah, actually, we didn't hear that. Uh, the, the sound insulation in these buildings is extraordinary. There is a plane that... Keep watching, Peter. What? Ah. Ah. Oh, my God. Uh, one of the towers has collapsed. Fortunately, not the one I'm in. The other one, the one I'm in is is one of the tower. The, the other tower, the tower I'm in is collapsing. I'm collapsing, Chris, under the sheer. I've managed. I'm out. I'm out. Uh, I'm very run. I'm not there. Where are you? I'm. I'm in a hotel in Midtown, the Marriott. My hotel, in my room. And you've also got Partridge talking about how he believes that the royals had Princess Diana murdered, yeah. but that this was a good thing. <laughs> and I mean, earlier I mentioned that Ian Duncan Smith's thing about David's Law. And the reason why I say I think that's like, you know, one of the best new bits of British satire of the last few years is because it is genuinely close to the edge. I mean, there's like a bit where they impersonate Brendan Cox talking about how when my darling wife Jo was murdered, I set up three charities in her honour but had to stand down for them for reasons. Uh, <laughs> and forms this charity being like, please stop calling me a sex pest on Twitter. I never touched her. I barely touched her. I did touch her, but I barely touched her anyway. This shouldn't all be about me. And it's really, really good on the ways in which the people involved are doing appalling things with their position, structurally very damaging things to people, and then turning it all around and being, no, but actually the problem is you just not being very civil on Twitter, and that's why this guy got murdered and why we have to pass a rule against online anonymity. Yeah, and exactly like the, the same fucking thing the they first, did. 
Go exactly. I mean, it really was disgraceful. I mean, it really was one of the most shameful displays I've ever seen in British politics. And, you know, again, you don't say that lightly. But yeah, I mean, it did very sort of effectively satirise the way these people behave. But also, you know, the first time I watched it, I was really just like, fuck, I'm not sure if this is OK. Every day, hundreds of MPs get called a prick on Twitter. It's vile and it has to stop. I'm Marc Francois. And in the time it takes me to say this sentence, I'll have been called a prick on Twitter eight times. That's why I'm calling for the Prime Minister to enact David's law. David Amos was one of my dearest friends before he was brutally taken from us by how did he die? Look, it doesn't matter. And as I cradled him in my arms, he beckoned me closer and he said, Mark, I just want you to know, I think it's disgusting what they're saying about you on Twitter. I don't care if she's still appealing the decision. The Met decided not to charge you, and that's final. And that was the last thing he said to me. My name is Brendan Cox. When my darling wife Jo was murdered by a far-right terrorist, I set up two charities in her memory, but was forced to step down from them for reasons. Third time's a charm, so I'm launching the David Amos Memorial Trust for Shut Up. Just shut the fuck up. Stop calling me a sex pest on Twitter. I barely touched her. Okay, I did touch her, but shut up. This probably shouldn't be all about me. Okay, let's add something about not calling people racist, even if they are racist. Like, just seriously, shut up. And then you sort of think about it a bit more. And, you know, the only other things I've ever really had that with were episodes of Brass Eye. I mean, I remember yeah. watching Peter Geddon the night it was <laughs> broadcast. It was, I was back from university, so I was back in Surrey. And I'd stayed up late, like everyone else had gone to bed. It was put back a week, I think, because of the murder of a schoolgirl called Sarah Payne. And no one knew what the subject was. So they managed to keep that under wraps, I think. And they just said, oh, wow, the brass eye special has been delayed for unforeseen circumstances or something. And it was on like a week or two later. And so it was on on a Thursday night. And I remember watching it and just from beginning to end being like, I can't believe this is on television. Like, I almost wasn't <laughs> laughing that much because I just, you know, it was kind of, you know, was genuinely sort of shot by it in a way I never really have been. Yeah, you got to kind of so, go back and catch your breath so you can Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I remember there was only one thing I really remember, though, is that there was only one advert in the middle of it because nobody no. was. <laughs> No, there was, advert, there was an advert for a car. I can't remember which model, but that's amazing. We're like, yeah, um, we, we tend to market our cars exclusively to paedophiles, so we'll exactly. be alright. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody wanted to advertise on this program, and I kind of watched it. And you know, the song at the end. Oh my god, I just I forgot incredible. about that one. Um, they've got some some classic musical moments in that because they got the Eminem parody and the they got, they got yeah. playground bang around playground bang around <laughs> is extraordinary i watched That's it again beautiful. the other day i mean you know i think comedically it's probably less funny than the rest of the series but it's just so astonishing that that got on and basically destroyed his tv career but the thing was i remember watching it and just being like my parents get the Daily Mail and I, you know, I was like, for once, I, like, I really want to see yeah. what, the, yeah. what the Daily Mail wants to say. And actually, because they were going to show it again the following night, the Friday night. And so there was a piece in the Daily Mail on the Friday morning saying something like on like, about page nine, just, you know, like a sort of sidebar, just saying, you know, Channel 4 broadcast sick paedophile comedy. And they were encouraging their readers to write in to Channel 4 to say, don't broadcast this again. Obviously, none of them would have seen it. Was that next um, to the article that was like, hey, check out it was 15-year-old celebrities. No, that was the Daily Charlotte Star. Church, that was, yeah, that was someone else. Uh, um, <laughs> but when all hell broke loose was the day after that when Channel 4 were like, no, fuck you, we're showing this again. And then, of course, that was when more people watched it. Yeah. Although not most of the people in politics who were complaining about it. David um, Blunkett. Yeah, yeah, David Blunkett. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a joke. He was like, 
you know, as a sick filth, I would never watch it. You know, I'd never yeah. have it on in my house. Tessa Jow was on it, wasn't she? But there was um... yeah, more politicians probably appeared in it than watched. Isn't it. watched it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, was Tessa Jow on it? I can't remember. There was another senior Labour figure, like someone like maybe Claire Short. I can't remember who now. Claire well, Short. Interesting. No, I think it was Claire Short. Another one of the most notable British satirists of the last twenty years or so made his television writing debut. No, I don't think. I think he'd written for like the Eleven O'clock Show or some shit before. But his entry into Morris world at least with a brass eye special somebody who people may have just watched some of the new season of black mirror charlie brooker was a ah, yeah of course on pedo geddon god yeah. the 11 o'clock show was fucking awful yeah like... was it, was, it wasn't like ricky gervais on that Every, uh, everyone, yeah. everyone watched it for ali g specifically <laughs> yeah, exactly and as soon as he left the ratings fell and that was when they really started pushing ricky gervais Mm. Oh, Peter Bainham co-writes a lot of yes. stuff with Sasha Baron Cohen, doesn't he? Mm. So, yes, another yeah. one who's done big things. I'm glad he's made some money. If you watch the latest Sasha Baron Cohen film, you can tell which jokes might have been by Bainham and which might have been by Lee Kern by whether <laughs> or not they're funny. Or funny. Or not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said somewhere else the other day, I don't think there's ever been such a disparity between the quality of two writers <laughs> on the same project. Unbelievable, yeah. Have any of you seen the new Black Mirrors yet? Not yet, no, no. No, no again, there's too much of it. And to be honest, most of the Black Mirror I've watched, I just haven't really been very taken with. I've just found it like a mm. bit obvious and boring. I was complaining to someone else mm. the other day. I was like, well, Charlie Brooker, you think he would Black Mirror? He's like, I'm going to do satire, but it's not actually going to be funny. It's going to be all tugging at the heartstrings. And satire doesn't have to be funny, but like it fucking helps. But anyway, I'm eating my words now because the first episode of the new Black Mirror is quote unquote funny. And I thought it was fucking awful. So stick to the <laughs> stick to the minor chills and homage well, I mean, to 70s pop culture, Charlie. Brooke, Brooker <laughs> is one of the people I go for the hardest in that article. Um, oh, yeah, because he did that mm. on one of his yearly wipes. He was like, yeah, fucking Corbyn. He wanted to nationalize the railways. What a cunt. Yeah, he's, he's a guy who spent years building himself up as uh, tells out his fearless truth teller type guy. And he's basically just doing James Ball's bit with extra yeah. wanking gestures. Exactly, and he's the sister-in-law of a Labour right-wing MP. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Charlie Brooker's an interesting one because I remember when he stopped doing the Guardian column, mm-hmm. Screenbird, and he quite openly, and I quite admired it, said, look, I can't do this anymore because I'm too close to the people I'm writing about and I yeah. can't write the withering put-downs of people because... He feels if bad you when he meets them in of... real life. And at least, yeah, and, you, you know, can understand that. that you know. like, most people, if you meet them in person, come Remember... across all right. I mean, and the same thing happened to me when I was working comment journalism. You know, I mean, I used yeah. to get in a lot of trouble for sticking up for people that, you know, in hindsight, I really shouldn't have done on the grounds that I'd met them and they seemed all right. It's like um, I'd never slag off another podcast because we're all in the game i understand what they're going through not even rory stewart (laughs) no him and alistair campbell they're my brothers in the the game (laughs) like i say yeah that's that's the next frontier in podcasting isn't it is using that to whitewash yourself Um, what's it called it's all the rest of politics (laughs) i'm gonna whitewash myself by starting a podcast oh fuck (laughs) don't forget our podcasting peers obama and bruce springsteen oh yeah the boys (laughs) but yeah gary lineker produces that doesn't he take a look at this what is it just a hillside look again there's a child there no more than a blue speck but the fact is if you show this picture to a paedophile they'll actually try and attack it in an attempt to reach the child that's the sort of warped mindset we're dealing with. A nice man, but um, but 
not dim. Children today often have mobile phones, but so too do paedophiles using text message slang. And because they're on edge, they dial wrong numbers. So watch out for these. Pipe to pipe Bushman, code for two paedophiles having sex with each other while watching children from a shrub. DBL means dusky blonde Lulu, and that's a male paedophile disguised as a lion. Baltimora, this means literally I'm running at them now with my trousers down. Not got a very deep political awareness beyond uh, <laughs> instinctive. I don't like some of this right wing shit. I mean, for a professional footballer, you could argue yeah. that's not yeah. too bad. Yeah, they can't. It's, it could be a much yeah. worse outcome. At least he is a nice man, but he's mm-hmm. no fucking Neville Southall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they exactly. can't be Neville Southall or Pat Nevin, you know. Yeah, although I sometimes do see a political Gary Lineker tweet, like one of his ones about Corbyn, and I'm like, yeah, guess the adult baby takeover is back on. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking. Do I have something else to say about Charlie Brooker? I do want to wrap up in a minute. We're just trying to get all our all our eggs in one basket. I heard you shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. We do. We we defy. We get all our ducks in a system. row. <laughs> <laughs> fucking. Yeah. I don't know. Brooker. I remember when he gave up that column because he was like, I can't do this because I I'm too close to the people who I'm taking the piss out of. Little did we know how true that was, because, yeah, when he did come back to do the wipe shows or whatever, Mm. generally his approach had been softened to shit. And there was also, there was that awful brief period where they tried to make Charlie Brooker like a TV comedian who did stuff in front of live audiences. Yeah. So not him. He's meant to be like this, like, angry guy ranting in a dingy room on his own. Yeah. That's his shtick. And then they tried to, like, stick him with Jimmy Carr and David Mitchell mm. and Victoria Corrin or whatever. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Giles Corrin. <laughs> but again, it, go- it goes back to the thing earlier, doesn't it? Of, like, creating your own formats versus having to fit into somebody else's. And, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's very interesting to think about the ideological positions of these people and the positions they start with and the positions they end up taking up, you know, sort of consciously mm. or unconsciously or implicitly or explicitly. But... <laughs> There's an interesting kind of formal analysis there as well, I think. Yeah, I would be like really intrigued by a panel show that takes the piss formally out of other panel shows, mm. except I'm sure <laughs> that this exists and somebody already thought of it and I've never listened to it or yeah. watched it because it's a fucking panel show. Yeah, and <laughs> it's being done by people we hate and is doing the equivalent of satirising the panel shows that the Radio 4 shows are doing to Starmer and, you know, just being like, oh, yes, this comedian, you know, ha, 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 ha. You know, she's quite ditzy, isn't she? Rather than like, oh, this comedian went to Oxford and went to private school and <laughs> got this route into the industry and that's why you have this comedian doing these types of jokes about these types of people in this type of way. Because, again, you're just you're not going to be allowed to have that sort of satire. I can't even remember who it was, but just that it's like some cutting-edge Radio 4 satire. <laughs> According to David Blunkett in his Daily Mail column, Radio 4 has been entirely colonised by oh the hard-left yeah, hard luminaries. <laughs> so by the woke, the woke left BLM, such as uh, Punt and Dennis of the Now Show. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, the funniest the possible woke... act you can be really yeah. Sorry, pissed it, off it about. Was from the right in 2023 yeah. it was woke trans blm that were the words that were written in the scene coming out of his ears <laughs> that his daily mail god. oh <laughs> god such a scumbag but um, I, I remember like alexi sale did his i hate keir starmer poem on mm. radio 4 and then i'm pretty sure like a couple of days later like someone on radio 4 was on there doing a whole 
quote unquote comedy bit about how they just love Keir Starmer. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but probably Matt Ford, yeah. Um... Yeah, so we've we've we talked a bit about Chris Morris now. I guess I guess we can we can probably wrap up. That's the main thing I wanted to address. I think yeah, we can we can probably wrap up. I think this has yeah. been good. All right, so what oh. have we learned? Um <laughs> I like funny jokes. Yep, same. Capitalism Je- just about everything, comedy included. Yes, As Jeremy absolutely. Corbyn once told Newsnight, what makes me laugh? Good comedy. Good jokes. <laughs> well, and, and, never and, children, and yeah. children being happy. Yeah. Like me, when I was a child and I watched these Iannucci and Chris Morris shows full of inappropriate <laughs> language and subject matter. But I was barely any happy. adverts. So. I, was I was just thinking yeah. the other day. Irreparably what... mentally damaged, yes, but happy at the time. <laughs> like, I think there, there were very few better signifiers of what a weird kid I was that I was like 11 watching the fucking Friday Night Armistice and maybe, Same, yeah. <laughs> maybe understanding half the jokes. <laughs> well, I, I don't really know what I got out of that, but <laughs> a lot of the time you have to go back to formative yeah. comedy you enjoyed as a kid, as an adult, so that you actually understand the jokes, <laughs> rather than just being enamoured of the comic form. You it know? was probably it was probably good for tipping me off that Blair was an insincere, slimy guy very early. Before oh yeah, he was prime minister even. Yeah, we were on that post-truth politics train before, way before of these fucking rubes. You think it was like invented by Putin or whatever? Like fucking idiots. Yeah, it was actually invented by David Quantic. It turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a term coined by Stuart Lee in 2004. The stupid now he doesn't use the phrase post-truth politics because it would be fucking lame if he did, right? <laughs> I think this has been really fun. Actually, we've addressed loads of shit. Juliet, do you have a more theoretical way to wrap this up? That seemed to be what you were driving at. Something more than I like good comedy, good jokes, and children being happy. Uh, I we can only do shit posts. We're very sorry. I don't like any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. No, I mean, I think it's just been interesting to think this through a bit. As I said earlier, I don't really see, and again, this is a much wider problem than comedy. I don't really see the stranglehold of certain sort of capitalist takeovers of alternative culture being broken. I don't see new networks that would, you know, actually allow interesting comedy the kind of budget and exposure that it would need to really kind of become part of the culture again i don't really see that happening anytime soon so i'm not particularly optimistic but people can do things on lower budgets people can find an audience you know you guys were able to produce a radio play and the whole of gapecast for example mm-hmm. on pretty much a shoestring <laughs> so <laughs> you know, all, yeah i mean all people can do is sort of keep making things that they're sincere yeah. about they care about they want to do mm. and sometimes there are weird glitches in the matrix that we live in but we'll see i guess so yeah that's all i've got to say it's not a particularly optimistic conclusion but it's a kind of don't give up conclusion which is pretty much <laughs> what i always seem to you end never, up doing on your show <laughs> you never know this time next year we might be watching the churnwell hour at like one in the morning on channel four exactly <laughs> bizarre tv yeah yeah um, can, can jimothy baker get his own show because i'd probably be a staff writer on that i, I mean he probably Quantic could but it might, it might be on it might be on gb news that's the problem <laughs> <laughs> i'll take that coin talk tv i don't give a fuck bring it on but the unheard youtube channel let's go I 
Russia, <laughs> Russia Today have got some comedy budget to spare that was getting Oh, no, that's actually good, though. I actually like Russia Today. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Russia Today launched top new comedy like Jonathan Pye. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> is Andrew oh, Doyle man. still writing that kind no, of shit, no, no, by no. the way? No, no. He's got too big. <laughs> yeah, Andrew Doyle, Andrew Doyle, does a, Andrew Doyle does a weird thing, or did a weird thing, where he kept trying to join in with and take over existing comedy characters, because... <laughs> Titanium, Titanium McGrath? Titanium, yeah. That was obviously someone else as well, and he got involved to help out, and then oh. successfully took that one over for a while, at least. Oh. Whereas with Jonathan Pye, he sort of joined as a writer, and then there was a brief period where it was like, more and more sort of spiked online stuff coming from him and then they've obviously fallen out but i think gb news sort of killed his interest in that because he can just have an hour of him ranting away about the right woke direct guy. to camera like there's no need for him to do it via a yeah, comedy character anymore he doesn't need to sneak his right-wing views into the back door of no. this of this stupid newsreader character he can just be a right-wing cunt on tv yeah <laughs> Fucking yeah, no, great stuff. Love Jonathan Pye, brilliant. That's, this is the future of satire. Jonathan Pye and Andrew Doyle, one representing the left, one <laughs> representing the right. That's how it should be. <laughs> That's the real centrism, baby. <laughs> the full range of British political opinion, <laughs> from centre right to far right. It's uh, yeah, yeah. exactly. I have a suggestion for some closing music. Oh yeah, um, which again, this might be up Garant Street. There's a half man, half biscuit song called "Your Heart," yes, which has, has another song the... about Owen Smith. Yeah, well, it's got one of my favourite opening. I mean, the best opening my favorite... line, really. Opening lines, a half man, half biscuit. It's like Henry <laughs> Rollins, Henry Rollins, your heart, your heart. <laughs> uh, but the second verse is like about comedy, and it's just like Lenny Henry, Lenny Henry, you're funny. You're funny. The, yeah, it'd be perfect. The sheer, the sheer sort of dismissive delivery of your funny. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, well, well, it's right. been very fun, Juliet. Thank you. Absolutely. For it's on always our a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Cool. Terrific. Thank All right. You. Cheers, guys. Take care.
instructors, loads of voiceovers, but nothing much else yet she seems to get by. Is this you, It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.